I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jared, how are you today? Doing well. Not as warm as yesterday. Uh, very summery here in the Bronx. Uh, very, very nice. How about, how about for you? Yeah, enjoying the weather and, uh, and you know, the change of season, the fact that uh, things seem to be in an encouraging place here in New York in terms of coming out of the public health crisis we've been in. Uh, hopefully that progress continues. And then, you know, to see some of the economic reopening is encouraging, you know, places in my neighborhood in Brooklyn that are starting to, um, you know, have some outdoor seating and have some customers come back to some cafes and such is, uh, you know, really good to see. And hopefully we, you know, the city and the state will be on that trajectory and continue that way. Yeah, we had the nicest thing here today. I live in the Norwood section of the Bronx, and there was an extensive parade. It had to go on for about 20 minutes today of teachers from the local school, which is down the block, um, riding by with their cars all decked out with balloons and signs and honking. And students had been, I guess, instructed to come out to the curb in their graduation garb. Um, these are elementary mm-hmm. school students to receive a form of congratulations for their milestone. And I just, you know, it's one of those things where however old you get, you can still kind of viscerally remember what it felt like that last day of school, especially if it was at some you know turning points, some crossroads, graduating or moving from one school to the next, just how special that was. And obviously, kids this year have been deprived of that uh, at, at every point in the educational uh, cycle, um, in their progress from you know K through high school, even college. Um, and it was it was very moving and touching to see people come out and neighbors come out to cheer them. So yeah, there is a certain there are signs of hope amid obviously a lot of concern about the city budget um, regarding uh, COVID. And and of course, the continuing you know, rate of infection, which there's still plenty of sick people in the city. Um, so a lot to worry about, but certainly some signs for optimism. Indeed, indeed. And of course, you know, that um, a lot, you know, a lot of what's been happening around that relates to decisions that our elected officials are making. And of course, to become our elected officials, they need to win elections and everything that's been going on is going to significantly impact the elections that we're having currently and the ones we're going to have in the future. And on today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the primaries that um, are happening as we speak. The Yesterday was primary day and absentee balloting and early voting have been going on. But because of the extent of absentee balloting, there's a lot we don't know. So there's not that much to dissect quite yet, although we'll chat a, a bit about what we do know so far. And then, as Jared alluded to in the opening, we're going to spend a good chunk of today's show talking about the really, really major uh, election happening one year from now, which will be the primaries for New York City Mayor 2021. This will be the first open mayoral election since back in 2013 when Bill de Blasio was first elected. And it it promises to be a fascinating, intense, uh, just of utmost importance election uh, coming up in a year. So we're going to try to really, you know, signify the fact that the primaries happening this year kind of also signal that one year from now we have this immense election coming up in New York City. Right. And obviously some folks will be wondering, my God, why are we talking about this now? There are a few reasons. One is that it's going to be a June primary under the new state law. That's very new for city politics. That'd be the first time that will be happening. So it's going to happen fairly quickly. It will feel into 2021. And not only is it the mayoral race, but there is a tremendous number of seats open throughout city government. Um, you know, the comptroller's 
office, the borough president's seats, um, and the majority of city council seats will also be up. The last time that we've really seen an election with the potential for this much change was 2001, the first year that New York City had uh, effective term limits, and it's really been a long time since then, a generation since then. Uh, so it's a, a complicated and important election. I can't think of a better example of the kind of analysis than the 2020 elections that occurred yesterday and, and for which the ballots are still being counted now. Um, you know, you mentioned at the outset that there are some early indications. We don't know the results in all the races because of the unusual nature of this year's election with um, not just uh, um, you know, June primary still being something people are getting used to, but also uh, many people using absentee ballots for the first time, some problems in getting those ballots out to people in time. So there's the question of the process. And then there are some interesting results. Obviously, the story that people are focused on mainly is that it appears as though, based on those very early results, that incumbent Congressman Elliot Engel, who represents parts of the Bronx and Westchester, um, will lose the Democratic nomination to Jamal Bowman. But obviously, that is a preliminary result. Uh, Carolyn Maloney, longtime congresswoman representing the Upper East Side and parts of Brooklyn and Queens, also in a very close contest with a narrow lead over Suraj Patel, her challenger in 2018 and again today. A few other races where it seems incumbents might have been surprised. Others where incumbents, including some uh, races that we focused here on the show in recent weeks, um, where they seem to have survived quite comfortably. Yvette Clark in the 9th District facing uh, several challengers and uh, also uh, Gerald uh, Nadler on the Upper West Side and parts of, of Brooklyn. So uh, what do you think of those results, Ben, sort of broadly? Do you see any other storylines there? Well, then, of course, there's the, the big race that didn't have an incumbent to win or lose, and that was the 15th Congressional District of in course. the Bronx. Um, and, and it looks like uh, City Council Member Richie Torres has uh, a significant upper hand there and is, is being predicted by some as the winner. Um, you know, there are a lot of absentee ballots to be counted. I don't know how many in that district. And, you know, the Bronx has often struggled with voter turnout and, and you know, uh, been so uh, decimated by the COVID crisis that, you know, it's tough to see what the voter turnout numbers will look like there, but that is a really important race coming into this election. Richie Torres looks to have the upper hand in what was a very crowded field. And so that's another really important one. And I think in terms of themes overall, I think in, in terms of themes overall, really I've seen another wave of this, this sort of aggressive insurgency um, that, you know, the Democratic party, certainly in New York and maybe elsewhere in the country, is really, um, you know, continuing to face a reckoning where you see, uh, you know, a few different sort of lanes to it. One is ideology. One is sort of race, ethnic demography and, and whether, you know, districts that have become more diverse over time have representation that really reflects the constituency. Then you have sort of a generational issue where you have a lot of really long time you know, you have a lot of ways in which, um, you know, there's there's kind of a reckoning happening. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. I looked at very early turnout numbers just, just based on the, um, the counts in some of the districts. And uh, it looks like they're about, you know, 14, 15 percent, which is obviously not great, but is not bad compared with similar primaries in previous years. And then you consider the fact that it appears likely there will be a much larger than typical absentee ballot turnout. Um, this actually might be a, a relatively robust turnout as primaries in 
in New York State and New York City go. One thing that strikes me, Ben, is that obviously the the kind of, the kind of big race big that race wasn't, that a, wasn't race a race on the, the um, um, on the ballot yesterday was the presidential primary. Uh, you know, kind of symbolic, or at least having only sort of behind the scenes import in terms of selecting delegates for platform fights and party management. But obviously, a lot of the congressional races yesterday set up a general election. That is what will actually count in many of these districts. The Democrat will almost certainly win. Um, obviously, there's always the possibility that an incumbent who lost their party nomination, could run again uh, on an independent line and using name recognition be restored uh, to their rightful place in Washington. But also a lot of that second wave, that second blue wave you're talking about, especially as it affects people who are coming into federal office, so much of their potential impact will be shaped by results not only nationally in November in terms of who the president uh, for the next four years is, but also in other congressional races and how they establish what kind of control by which party over Congress. So, so much of the implications of yesterday's races will come down not just to what the final tally is, but uh, pol- political events and outcomes that are still to unfold over the rest of this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's well said. I mean, in New York, obviously, especially in New York City, there's just such a high percentage of the action happens in the Democratic primary, and we're often so focused on that. And that makes a lot of sense, again, given the the disparities in the voter registration numbers and, and where the competition really is. But then when you get to you know, at least some of what the impact of these results will be, you know, how much impact Jamal Bowman and Richie Torres and many others have, um, you know, will definitely be partly a function of which party, of course, controls their House of Representatives and, and also which party controls the Senate and the presidency. So there's a really a lot, um, a lot to be determined this fall. And, you know, it'll be very interesting, I'll just say briefly, you know, for us to look ahead in the general election here in New York City, where probably the only or the biggest show in town will be this congressional race on Staten Island and some of Southern Brooklyn with Max Rose trying to hold on to his seat against Nicole Maliotakis. So we'll save that for another time. But, you know, New York City will at least be home to one very competitive general election and the eyes of the nation will really be on that race as well. And so today on on Max and Murphy, we are going to dissect a little bit more some of what we know so far about the 2020 primary elections here in New York City. And then we're also really going to take an in-depth look at the 2021 New York City mayoral race. We are one year from that primary. We're actually a couple days uh, less than a year. I think it's going to be on something like June 22nd of next year. And that primary, especially on the Democratic side, is most likely going to declare the next mayor of New York City. There will likely be uh, a Republican primary as well, or at least there will be a a formidable Republican nominee in the general election for mayor. But of course, in the heavily Democratic city, the Democratic primary for mayor that will be happening next year will be a huge focus. And we want to sort of get uh, an initial conversation happening today with a couple of really smart experts who will help us break down both some of the results happening around us right now in this year's election, but also look ahead to next year's mayoral election. And so we're going to bring on the line now those two experts, and they are Neil Quattro, who is the founder of Metropolitan Strategies. And Neil also previously has worked in government and in other uh, political and political consulting capacities. And we're bringing back to the show Rebecca Katz, 
who is the founding partner of New Deal Strategies, and she's previously worked in government and politics at a variety of levels in different campaigns. And just to highlight uh, one of those, because it relates so much to the discussion we're having today, that was Bill de Blasio's 2013 New York City mayoral campaign. So she brings insights from that campaign with her today. So Neil Quatra and Rebecca Katz, thanks so much for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with you, Neil, and sort of general reactions to the results or, I guess, the very preliminary tallies from last night. What stands out for you? Well, I think you guys covered a lot of it. I mean, definitely a good night for progressive challengers, uh, a good night for the DSA, uh, not a great night for incumbents and uh, county committees, county parties, um, and not a great night, in my view, uh, really for the labor movement. Um, the labor movement was split in a lot of these races, um, and I think, you know, part of what we're seeing with the rise of the DSA is uh, a, pro- a product of a vacuum that's, that's, that's really been created um, by the lack of cohesion within the labor movement. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see coming off of this if, if the labor movement, you know, can figure out how to be more cohesive heading into 2021. Or I think, you know, we're likely to see a lot more uh, of the results we saw last night. So, Rebecca, uh, this is a huge day for you. Um, why, don't you uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work for the Jabal Bowman campaign and how that campaign uh, did what it did? Yeah, I know. You're bringing up 2013 de Blasio. I just did 2020 de Bowman last night. Well, we're, we're, um, <laughs> it's such a long resume, oh, Rebecca. you got to give us time. <laughs> that just makes me sad. We're getting okay, to it. so um, we had, I mean, Jamal Bowman uh, – a year ago announced for Congress, it was very, it was everyone said how uphill it was, you know, and the comparisons to AOC, oh, he he won't, he won't be able to sneak up on the Democrats this time, like they'll be ready. And Jamal is just someone he's known in the community. He's a middle school principal. um, And he has what we call big middle school principal energy, where he just does not get tired. Um, and he campaigned relentlessly um, all around the district, from Co-op City to Riverdale, you know, to Hastings and Scarsdale and all over Westchester, um, and just met tons and tons of voters, introduced himself, um, and made calls, and really was a little bit known even before COVID happened. And then um, once the pandemic did start, you know, Jamal was out there again getting food um, out to folks, you know, doing Zooms, talking to people, um, hearing their concerns. Um, And it was really a study in contrast. You know, Elliot Engel um, was gone for the entire pandemic. He was, um, you know, and he was gone for months. He came back. He had the now famous uh, hot mic moment where he said, if I didn't have a primary, I wouldn't care. Um, we seized on that, and uh, the the Democratic establishment then fought back. They brought in all the big guns, from Pelosi to Hillary Clinton to um, Cuomo to first not Schumer, then Schumer got pressured, and then he came in for Engel. Um, $2 million in negative ads um, from the Democratic majority for Israel, talking about a lot of things not about Israel, um, all over the district and mail and text messages, just smears. And Jamal kept it positive, um, stuck to a message um, talking about actually giving hope to real people. And it looks like he's going to be the next congressman. 
Say, say, a little bit more about, say a little bit more about that message, because obviously, you know, when we talk to um, to you and to Neil and to others, you know, that's so much of where people um, people hire you to help them with and they help help you craft what their message is and how they get it out to people. Um, just say a little bit more on, on the Bowman campaign about sure. what that was. So, so, yeah, so Ayanna Presley, the congresswoman from Massachusetts, has this line about, like, those who are closer to the pain need to be closer to the power. Um, and Jamal is someone who doesn't just talk in theory about hard choices facing Americans. He's someone who's lived that pain. And so when there are people in the streets who are protesting police brutality, that's not something that Jamal has to learn about. He's been dealing with that since he was 11 years old. You know, he's been, he um, had a single mom, grown up um, some time in, you know, um, public housing. He understood um, what it's like, you know, to struggle. And that was really at the forefront of the campaign because a lot of people we're talking about like um, in the Bronx um, and co-op city, like have struggled. And so we have, you know, we co-op city, especially was hit so hard with the coronavirus, more deaths um, in that area than like concentrated than anywhere else. Um, and they were, no one was paying attention. When there was an outbreak in New Rochelle, the government correctly surrounded it and and contained it and then when it happened nearby in co-op like it just exploded and there was no containment um and so jamal like likes what's happening in rochelle wants that to be able you know to happen in in other communities as well so i mean he had a real personal connection you know we would do these debates and and he would say i brought home the bacon you know that doesn't resonate with people who never got the bacon right um I think people want someone who who can represent them and and fight for them. Also, bacon is like really really salty, and it may not be <laughs> something that we should all be eating that much. Um, yeah. Neil, I wanted to go back to something you said about the fracturing of the labor movement. That's fascinating. Talk a little more about that. How how is it kind of breaking up, and what's driving that? You know, because obviously. Sometimes it's not always been a one big tent labor movement in the city. You have the uniform services on one side and everyone else on the other. So it's happened in the past. They're not all spoken with one voice. But what would you say is driving the different agendas now? I don't know that there's anything new in particular that, that are driving divergent approaches to electoral politics. I think, frankly, it's as much just a function. I mean, I, I saw this when I first came back to New York in 2008 when I started working for the Hotel Trades Council, and we went out and we sat with building trades and a number of other unions to talk about not just collective electoral uh, work, but also campaign and organizing work, because we saw, frankly, at that time with the Bloomberg administration, the only way we were going to win the kinds of reforms and policies that we wanted implemented were if the labor movement wasn't allowed to be divided and conquered, frankly, the way the Bloomberg administration often did around things like rezoning and other things. And so... I think there's nothing really new, but I think what we now have are other players on the playing field, frankly, that have, uh, you know, gone to the vacuum that the labor movement's lack of cohesion has created. And whether it's the DSA, the WFP, whether it's groups like Make the Road, groups like Center for Popular Democracy, you have a lot of energy that I think, uh, you know, is is emerging. um, And it's uh, a problem for the labor movement if they want to, I think, continue to have both the impact and influence that they've had in the recent past. Uh, Rebecca, and then and back to Neil on this. Um, Rebecca, 
when when Neil talks about you know some of the fracturing and the new emerging you know powers um, that obviously speaks to you know some of the battles here that you've been at the you know in the trenches on whether it's the Bowman campaign or the Cynthia Nixon campaign um, coming out of last night and and what's going on this month um, Bowman and larger you know sort of how are you thinking about um, the battles within the Democratic Party? I mean I think it's 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 to make a real conclusion. You know, everybody saw after Biden got the nomination, you know, there were all these articles about the left is dead. It's over. They lost everything. And last night, you know, progressives came roaring back. Um, I think there's a lot, there's a lot that's not being addressed right now. I just to Neil's point about labor unions, the folks who sat on the sidelines, like for AOC, I thought they wouldn't make that mistake again. Um, and exactly. for Bowman who had so much um, energy and excitement among like people, like regular people, you know, the, the unions, you know, the, a lot, you know, the nurses came out for us, but a lot of folks didn't, you know, they, they were, they were still with Angle because that's what you go. You, you stick with the incumbent. And I feel like that's how you miss out on f- fighters. Like it's, it's great to get someone who might vote the right way, but you need at, at times like this, you need someone who will fight for your people. Um, and the, the union exactly should be looking right. for someone like that right now. Um, I mean, in, in terms of like grassroots, we were so lucky. I mean, we had the Sunrise Movement. We had Make the Road. We had the Jewish Vote. We had so many like um, community voices heard, just like amazing folks who did the work and got out there. And, you know, the, a lot of those folks were with us on Cynthia. Um, we didn't have much money on the Cynthia campaign. We were outspent, I don't know, 20 to 1. Uh, Engel outspent Bowman, but not not in astronomical numbers. So we had a much clearer message. We had a clearer contrast, contrast, and we were able to to talk to voters and and have them connect with Jamal in a way that they um, did not feel they were doing with Engel. One voter said to us, "I've heard more from Congressman Engel in the last three days than I did in the last thirty years." Mm. Any thoughts on uh, that sort of larger picture, Neil? Yeah, no, I, I agree a lot with what Rebecca's saying. I mean, I think in particular her point about voters hungering for candidates who are willing to fight. We are living through an America right now where uh, faith in our institutions and so-called norms are being eroded by the day. We have a lawless justice department and uh, among other things. And I think voters watching all of that uh, and then hearing our representatives often sort of throw up their hands and say, well, can't do anything about that because the Republicans aren't going to act on it. Or, you know, that's not the only example, obviously, but I think creativity, innovation, thinking outside the box is as much what, you know, candidates like Jamal Bowman showed voters as anything. And that's what voters are hungering for. And so, I mean, I think that's going to be the case next for next year's mayoral race too, frankly. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I was I was thinking about the governor's construct about, uh, you know, the state of New York vis-a-vis the federal government and its contributions and how New York is a net payer, all of which is very true. Um, there's a very similar dynamic for New York City with Albany. And frankly, much of our lives here in New York City are governed, dictated and implemented by decisions made in Albany, whether it's housing, whether it's public transit, whether it's taxes. And frankly, like, I think the leader in this moment who demonstrates an ability and willingness to 
confront and and do what needs to be done in Albany, um, you know, is is going to have uh, is going to have an advantage. It's so interesting you say that um, because I've been thinking a lot about the mayor's race in that there was something happening all over New York City during these primaries where, like, you know, people had real choices and real ideas were being discussed. And there were so many, so many of these mayoral candidates who like to have their face on TV were absolutely nowhere. They were all just hiding because they have to deal with, yep. you know, this power boss or that one or that, you know, this county. And it was just, it was ridiculous. And what I will say is I don't have a horse um, in 2021, but Scott Stringer came out for Bowman and put himself out there, you know, in Grimmerdale for Bowman. And that was a pretty big deal. And I, it was yep. the first time I actually saw a 2021, like actually taking a risk um, and seeing what's happening um, and doing something about it. Well, that's a perfect segue, actually. Uh, we're, you're, you're listening to WBAI, to the Max and Murphy Show. We have on uh, two experienced political consultants and strategists who've worked inside and outside of government, Neil Quatra and Rebecca Katz. We've just been breaking down the 2020 primary elections of yesterday and what we know so far. And now we're going to turn to talking about 2021. And Neil, I'll let you get in uh, next with a response to what Rebecca was saying. But I guess more generally for guests who are new to thinking about this, how do you size up the 2021 mayoral field and has have their positions vis-a-vis one another changed at all because of the political turmoil of the past few months of the pandemic and the protests around racial racial injustice? Has that shaken things up at all? Neil, before Neil, before you answer that, let me really quick give to listeners just who we're talking about real fast. So so Rebecca mentioned Scott Stringer, who's the New York City controller. We have New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. We have Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Those are sort of the three, you know, what many people consider kind of top tier Democratic candidates. They're current office holders. And then we have Diane Morales, who's in the race, who's a former uh, nonprofit executive. We have Laurie Sutton, who's the city's former Veterans Affairs Commissioner. And we have Sean Donovan, who, you know, hasn't declared but is exploring. And he's a former uh, high-level aide to both Barack Obama and Michael Bloomberg. So those are those are kind of the six names in the mix right now. And then there's some others that, you know, are kind of wild cards on the Democratic side. But just wanted to get those names out there for listeners and then uh, jump right in there, Neil. Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, look, I think unequivocally, uh, the, the recent events, twin events of COVID and the protests um, have unquestionably scrambled things. Not necessarily, I don't think, the dynamics between the candidates, but I think uh, what each candidate is going to need to now do to meet the moment, because we are in a very different moment and people are paying attention. People are on the streets. People are researching people's records and where they were on issues, not just in the last six weeks, but in the last six years. And I think all of that is still yet to shake out, frankly. And I think the three top candidates, uh, to Rebecca's point, um, uh, all have not yet, in my view, sort of met this current moment, not to say they can't. I do think, you know, to, to her point as well about Scott, I think Scott, you know, uh, on this question of endorsements, not just Bowman, which was his latest, but this has been a pattern now for Stringer going back really several years. I mean, Nilly Rosick in 2012, Robert Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, Jessica Ramos, Biagi, Salazar, Catalina Cruz, Yuli New. I mean, these are 
all key endorsements that were made, you know, frankly, before uh, a lot of energy or any of the establishment were going to these candidacies. And I think that, you know, in a moment like this obviously can be important because those candidates, by the way, many of the ones I mentioned are very much at the center of a lot of the progressive energy that's coursing through this city. They are leaders. They are organizers. And I think that, you know, can definitely be uh, an advantage for for Stringer. But I do think, frankly, you know, to, to Rebecca's point, like this is a new moment and all three of them are going to have to raise their games to show people uh, that they're capable of leading this city. Do we expect um, uh, anything from the GOP? Is there anyone who stands out as a potential candidate? And are there any wild cards out there uh, for an independent race or on the Democratic side, like Christine Quinn? Uh, some other names have been mentioned. Do we, do we think the table is more or less set, or will there be more names by the time all is said and done? I mean, look at what we've just seen in the last six months. I mean, I certainly hope there's nothing new that happens like, terrible <laughs> in the world, but I think it's it's getting hard to predict at this point. Um, and, you know, if you look at the Bowman race last night, six weeks out, people were still, weren't even giving him a shot. So, you know, you never know what can happen. De Blasio didn't surge until right at the end, like just the last couple of weeks. Um, so it's hard to know, like, who has a shot, who might come out of the woodwork. Um, but I think right now we need someone who can deal with the, you know, there's so much economic pain in New York City. There's, like, we need a mayor who can talk, can talk about jobs, who has solutions, who has plans. But we also need someone who actually understands, you know, the anger and the, the pain that so many New Yorkers are going through. And someone who understands, like, we need systematic change. That's the thing. If you look at the people who are running, who can deal with 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 what's happening? Who can say, yes, like we, we need the, the NYPD is broken and it is not working and we have to fundamentally change how it works. And and if that means deconstructing a lot of it, we have to do that. I don't see that many of these candidates like going that far as of now. Yep. I think I think Rebecca makes a really good point, which, which is, you know, part of this, too, is it, it, the conversation can't just stop at police reform and accountability. All of these issues of systemic racism course through every aspect of public life, from housing to education to taxes to Medicaid, for crying out loud. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we have the state of New York continuing to cut Medicaid. Um, in the state of New York, 37% of every non-elderly African-American is on Medicaid. When you cut Medicaid, you are cutting health care for African-Americans in the state of New York, period, end of story. These are conversations we have to have through that lens, given this moment. If, if, the, if, if people think the conversation is going to stop with a few criminal justice reforms and a few police accountability tweaks, I think they're very wrong. How will the new, what appears to be the new fiscal reality shape that conversation because obviously during the end of the Bloomberg years and the race that made de Blasio mayor and his time in City Hall, you know, there have been very few constraints in any practical sense on what the city could spend um, on pre-K, on other major initiatives. Um, that might not be possible for the short term, maybe for a very long time. How is that going to affect the kind of progressivism we see 
in the race? And, and do you think candidates are adjusting to that? I'll start with you, Rebecca, since you were there with de Blasio you know, at the outset. Yeah, I mean, it's about priorities. I mean, we were if we were talking about a tale of two cities and the need to tax the rich eight years ago, I mean, look at where we are right now. But what's so it's we have to also think about where are we spending the money? What is our most important thing? We're looking at, what are they saying, $800 million cut from schools? We need school services more than ever. Our kids have just spent, like, months and months in the wilderness with nothing. Like, they're going to come back. They're going to need enormous, you know, counseling and social-emotional support. And to cut now is just devastating. And so parents, there's going to be a lot of people who are frustrated with what's happening, but they have to... And, and obviously there's going to be cuts, but you can't cut the areas that will that will have long, uh, the kind of long-term damage that will happen if we cut schools this dramatically. So I think that's going to be fight. Like, where do we cut? And I think NYPD budget is kind of number one. Is there any um, – yeah, I mean – go ahead, Neil. This is where the revenue conversation comes in, though, frankly. I mean, of course there's going to be cuts and people are going to talk about – where cuts should be made and where they should not be made. But we have to have a revenue conversation in New York and whether it's around high hours, whether it's a mansion. I'm sorry. I said, you're taking us back to Albany again. (laughs) Yes, correct. Well, that's, that's the reality. I mean, if the city of New York could raise revenue on its own, we wouldn't be dealing with a lot of these problems. I, 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 I guess, frankly, because I think there would be more political will. But a lot of the blockages of the revenue proposals that have moved through Albany in recent years uh, don't have enough support. And I think, you know, that's going to be a challenge for the city's next leader and then the city's next city council. So I, I'm tempted to ask, and maybe we can get to this, if um, if Rebecca, if you if you agree with Neil that sort of setting up a fight with Andrew Cuomo in the, in the, in the mayoral primary, uh, is, is a good, is a good strategy. Um, but, but I also wanted to ask, um, for both of your thoughts on, you know, the, the, the progressive left obviously seems to be ascendant here in some of what we, what we've seen, um, in the, in this month's primaries. And then obviously, um, the 2018 election cycle with the state Senate races and, and others. Um, but, do we? Are you sure that um, some of the things that you're saying is really what the sort of Democratic primary electorate in the mayor's race is is really going to be yearning for? I mean, is there is there a, a different sort of strand of Democrat? You know, that it seems like Eric Adams is trying to appeal to more. That's a little bit more sort of liberal, moderate, but not necessarily wanting um you know to to sort of overhaul the system where. You know, Scott Stringer, Corey Johnson and others might be sort of inching towards, you know, the more sort of radical thinking about things. But Eric Adams is is more talking about sort of like taking a new leadership approach to the current systems. Uh, where to begin? So <laughs> I uh, I think the the next mayor is going to be like you always kind of want the opposite of what you have. Right. But I think. A lot of what de Blasio ran on um, will resonate now, except the differences in style and personality, right? So we have to put someone in there who actually understands how to lift people up. And it's I don't think any tack to the center is going to work um, after what New York is going to go through in the next 18 months. I think the next 
mayor is going to be someone who is talking about how to provide more housing, better schools, figuring out jobs, figuring out, like, I don't know, universal basic income at this point. Something that's different and radical and helps keep the economy in New York City afloat and helps keep people in their homes um, and things like that. So I, to me, you know, I, I remember in 2013, everyone kept kind of going to the center and speaking to that same, you know, centrist pragmatism, you know, outer borough voter, you know, and it, we had, I guess it was Quinn and Wiener and Thompson all kind of speaking the same, you know, stop and frisk, go Ray Kelly, you know, middle class t- cuts. And de Blasio was the only one actually talking about the like talking about poor people. Um, mm-hmm. And you know what? There's going to be a lot more people who need a lot more than they did in 2013. Um, and the next mayor has to figure out how to keep this city moving forward. And that's going to be the issue. People are going to be like desperate for change. Neil, how do you think candidates w- will, how do you think they should talk about the current mayor? Obviously, uh, you know, the, refer- the election will to some degree revolve around his, as Rebecca just said, not just his policy accomplishments or failings in some areas, but his style. How do you convey a difference in style through a campaign? And, you know, will some candidates maybe even embrace de Blasio more just because, you know, they, they have to separate themselves from one another and they can't they can't all just spend all their time running him down? How do you think they'll position themselves relative to the current mayor? Yeah, I think to Rebecca's point, I think uh, actions will speak louder than words. And whether it's lifting people up, whether it's, you know, uh, helping to connect in ways that the current mayor, you know, has either been unwilling or unable to. I think like Jamal Bowman, we were just talking about is a great example of that. Right. Like like that kind of garrulous personality that's engaging with voters, that's walking neighborhoods, that's that that's connecting in a way, you know, we have this whole conversation around police community relations and accountability. Like these are areas where a new mayor, I think, can can look at the missteps of de Blasio as both, you know, using the bully pulpit and his policy implementation and without having to, you know, crack him over the head, just show and demonstrate a different way forward. And I think that's going to be, you know, because frankly, like the beating up of de Blasio, whether it's by, you know, understandably reporters and, 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 and other politicians, I think at some point, like, like people are going to be tired of that rhetoric and ready for solutions and a way forward from this administration. Yeah, I'm going to make a wild prediction that nobody running for mayor in 2021 will do so by embracing de Blasio more. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, there might be there's a there's a lot of good policies that he has put forward, most, you know, importantly, pre-K um, and that you can talk about that. But if you thought de Blasio bashing Bloomberg was bad eight years ago, wait till you see what's going to happen to Bill de Blasio in 2021. I just think that. Everyone will blame him for everything, including the council members who voted for the police budget that he was, you know, apprehensive about. You know, like he will just get blamed for everything. Some things that are his fault and some things that are not. What are some of the uh, advantages? I mean, you know, Neil, you got me thinking this, um, you know, when you said sort of a, you know, uh, more of a personality, uh, someone who's sort of walking the streets. And, you know, that obviously sort of brings to mind of the current crop, you know, brings to mind Corey Johnson a bit. Um, You know, it's yet to be seen, uh, you know, exactly how some of the other candidates will campaign and what their sort of campaign personas will be like in their platforms. But 
Um, what are, you know, are there a couple of advantages you think, you know, this candidate or that candidate brings to the race? Um, you know, is, are we, um, underestimating, you know, the possibility of, of a Sean Donovan getting into this or what someone like a Dan, Dan Morales can galvanize in the race? Look, Sean Donovan is a very capable guy, but I think the only thing tougher than running on de Blasio's record in 2020 run is running on Bloomberg's, which Sean Donovan <laughs> would have to do and defend if he did. Um, so, look, yeah, I do think that, you know, all three of the top candidates actually have high sort of emotional intelligence, emotional IQ, if you will, and are human beings fully realized in different ways that, you know, can all, I think, demonstrate in different ways, you know, that ability to connect with voters. I, I think they all, frankly, all three of them in different ways and some, you know, more uh, uh, compelling and charismatic than others, but all three have that. Um, uh, I, I think, though, you know, the fact that we've lived through a pandemic and we've lived through these protests in recent weeks that there's also going to be a desire for someone who, you know, frankly knows how to run things, how to manage things, how to administrate things, how to execute things. And I think that part of the resume of these candidates and any candidate that comes in will be newly important as we've all lived through this pandemic and recognize how critical it is to have leaders that are both talking to us, modeling for us, giving us information. Uh, I think I think that's, you know, in addition to the sort of personality stuff we're talking about, is going to be important for uh, the next mayor. Why do you think in this year of all years, um, in a city where we have uh, a couple of female district attorneys, uh, you know, a, a, a woman who's an attorney general, uh, several other high-ranking office holders who are who are women. Why? I mean, obviously, there are two women in the field currently: Laurie Sutton, Di Morales, but they are not considered in the top tier. Why is there not a top tier female candidate for mayor in New York City? It seems it seems like there there should be one, and there and there would be one given the the bench that's out there. Rebecca, I mean, that's a good be. question, right? I would, I would say, yeah. I would say that I'd be, I'd, I'd keep an eye on Diane Morales. I don't know, maybe she's not in the top tier now, but that doesn't mean she won't be in the top tier, mm-hmm. you know, a year from now. Um, I think she's uh, got a lot of things, uh, good things going for her, and um, and people would be surprised, um, pleasantly surprised when they get to know her. Um, I, I mean, this is a bigger problem than just why aren't there more women running for, for mayor? Why aren't there more women in office, especially, at, you know, in city council? Why aren't we? I mean, we could I could go on about this for a very long time. But what, but what I think is the issue is that why are there in a city like New York also so many white men who are running right now, you know, and, or mm-hmm. who feel that they can win? And um, and then what are they doing it? Where how are they checking their privilege? You know, like I think I mean, going back to Stringer for a second, what I thought was so interesting is that he was, you know, interested in meeting Jamal and hearing from him in a way that I feel that some candidates just won't won't have their, you know, won't open the door to this stuff. And that's what we have to think about. Like, we can't get new candidates until we until there is more support in the you know, for them. And Stringer, you know, was one of the people who kind of opened his arms to Jamal. I'd be interested to see what other moments like that there are going forward. Um, and it, it's just harder for women to break in. Yes. Neil, what do you, yeah. what do you, yeah. just on, on, on Eric Adams for a second, what do you think of his, um, you know, or sort of his 
his strengths and weaknesses going into this because he's obviously such an interesting figure, the way he's sort of straddling police reform um, and, you know, for lack of a better term, law and order, uh, he sort of seems to straddle being fairly pro-development, but also being extremely anti-gentrification. Uh, um, you know, he, he seems to have, you know, some interesting lines that he's trying to walk already. Yeah, look, Eric's, a, I think, a, a, an interesting and compelling candidate. In addition to that, he has a very interesting, you know, personal life story and life transformation through his veganism and his diabetes and being able to talk about those issues, I think, in a very personal way is the kind of thing we've all been talking about here, right? Where someone like, you know, Rebecca talked about it when we were talking about Jamal, uh, of his connection and his ability to demonstrate authenticity that you can't teach, right? And I think that's the kind of thing that someone like Eric, frankly, who has served in the state legislature, who's running a borough like Brooklyn, who has been a cop in New York City, there are a lot of, you know, uh, advantages and a lot of uh, a lot of credibility that he's going to bring to the conversation that we're all going to have. So looking ahead, so we're, you know, we're June uh, 24th, 2020, 2020, and uh, we're, you know, as Ben said at the outset, under a year away from this race. Look at the next few months between now and, say, Christmas. When you're thinking of the mayoral field, what are the important things that they can do? What are the important kind of uh, pinch points? What should we be looking? What should we be looking to see from them? Are there going to be opportunities for them that we know about to establish leadership, and what will those be? What do you think the calendar looks like, Rebecca? I mean, it's. I think that New York is going to have have to have a lot of big, bold ideas to figure out the path forward. Um, the first thing I'm looking at, just as a public school parent, is how are we preparing for September and which one of these, you know, candidates has ideas for how to get our kids safely back in the classroom and, and fully engaged. You know, I haven't, what's so interesting is I, I see a lot of criticism of the mayor from these candidates. Obviously that's what you do when you're not mayor, you criticize the mayor, but I haven't seen people really diving in for new ideas. And this city is going to be, is going to need new ideas more than ever in the next 18 months in in terms of how we bounce back and how we deal with like the political realities and changing the system and everything that's happening. So who's, who's got a plan for that? Neil? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think (laughs) just looking at the calendar, the other thing that I think is going to be interesting as a voter in New York city, as I'm looking at these candidates, I think in general, Democrats are going to obviously be very focused on the presidential race, but also winning the Senate and keeping control of the house. And all three of those guys have ways to be helpful, whether directly or from afar to those efforts. And I think that's the thing that we don't see a lot of. I think we're seeing more of it with smarter candidates who think like organizers, but uh, I think that's something uh, that'll be interesting to watch to see if any of those candidates in the way they did for the state legislative fights around control of the Senate, whether they'll do anything given how that will be where a lot of the focus is nationally uh, down the stretch here for the next few months. I want to make a, uh one quick note, and then I want to come back to you each for a final thought, which the que- I'll tell you the question now so you can think about it while I make my note. Um, but the question basically is, is there a name or two out there that you think you know, would be very interesting if they got into the race? So Jared earlier mentioned Christine Quinn. Um, you know, Maya Wiley's name is out there a little bit. Are there, are there any names out there that you think would be interesting uh, if they wanted to throw their hat in the ring here? 
Um, but before we get your, your quick answers on that and then say goodbye, I do want to note for folks, we didn't get to uh, something that will be really important in this race, but, but we'll dig into it on another episode. And thankfully, we have quite a while uh, before this, this vote happens next June, but that's ranked choice voting. And next June is going to see the, the launch of ranked choice voting in the city. And, you know, we don't know what impact that's going to have, but it's going to be a very interesting dynamic of this mayoral primary. And so we will certainly talk about that more in an upcoming show. Um, but I didn't want to leave it out of this discussion because it is going to be fascinating to see how that impacts how people run their races. Um, but anyway, we have to Absolutely. say goodbye to our great, our great guests here. But uh, a final a thought from each of you on an interesting name that's out there that could shake up the race. Not necessarily somebody you want to jump in, but uh, any names out there? Maya Wiley, know, definitely. Like I, oh. Yeah, I mean, I love Maya. That could be really interesting. But what I will say is we just saw this presidential with all these interesting cast of characters. And at the end of the day, they went with a guy that we knew about first. So mm. who, who knows what will happen? But <laughs> I, I mean, I, I always love a good, a good, exciting race. But it, you never know if we go right back to where we started. And you don't think there's someone sort of in the, in the left of the party where you've been working so much that um, should jump in? I don't know. I'm going to stop making predictions about like who might run. I but I I do think um, I think it could get more exciting and then less exciting. That's my prediction. Right. <laughs> well, Neil Quatra and Rebecca Katz, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it, and we'll be calling you again. Thanks thank for you. having us.